Welcome to this DGSM podcast. My name is Babette Fleim. I'm deputy editor for the DGSM, and I'm interviewing Professor Michael Kerr. He is professor in sports medicine at the Institute of Sports Medicine and Center for Healthy Aging in Copenhagen, Denmark, and has published over 200 peer-reviewed articles in the areas of sports medicine and muscle and tendon adaptation, both at the structural and mechanical levels, as well as at the molecular and cellular level. Michael is interested in mechanisms of adaptations to muscle and tendon following exercise, disease, disease and aging, a fascinating subject and something we will discuss today. Welcome, Michael. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Well, this fascinating topic has, has um, there's lots of articles on it. And regarding the pathogenesis of tendinopathy, there are at least seven models out there. Could you give a synthesis of those? But in general, you can say you mentioned seven, and there are probably even more than that, but there are, there are a lot of theories out there. But if we want to sort of lump them into, let's say, the more uh, realistic or well-supported ones, you can argue that, that one big group of, of, uh, of ideas concentrate about the idea that you, the whole thing starts with some kind of mechanical damage to the tendon region, some rupture of some fibrils or some other mechanical uh, damage, and that will then create, uh, first of all, an acute uh, attempt to to heal. That means there is a fibroblast proliferation, angiogenesis, nerve ingrowth. There are inflammatory cells in the beginning, and for some reason, that healing then doesn't succeed really in getting to the to the final point. Um, the support for that theory is, of course, some of the events that happened. But against this explanation is, of course, that nobody has really been able to visualize a, a lesion in the tendon associated with tendinopathy. Whereas you see a lot of changes in the area, you, you don't really see the same picture as you see with, uh, with a, a partial rupture. Secondly, it's never a very fast, acute occurring response or, or event. So the athletes very often have a gradual onset of this. And, and if it was sort of a major damage, you would think that, that there would be a more sudden onset. And thirdly, there are some biochemical uh, proofs that if you take tissue out from tendinopathic tendons, what you see there in terms of biochemical changes is not similar to what you see with the rupture healing. So, so there is sort of pro and cons. What, what is supporting the idea that, that something acutely happens is that, that there is uh, evidence for a very early inflammatory response, uh, heat shock protein responses, and, and anti-inflammatory treatment has some effect in the early phases. However, in the late stage, it's typically a histological degeneration and there's no in, inducible inflammation in the chronic state. So, so definitely that also brings it sort of be, so be a little bit unsecure. And finally, those who uh, subscribe to the mechanical damage theory also have an idea that there could be a sort of a shielding off the certain area that is then shielded off for the rest of the the tendon and, and therefore is, is sort of hiding for the for the normal uh, mechanical loading. Another one which which I think is absolutely valid also is uh, the idea that uh, the primary events are changes in nociceptive substances and neuronal activity. So for some reason, when you overload the tendon, there will be an ingrowth of nerves. There will be exaggerated pain when you do something. 
And that could easily be one of the explanatory factors. We know that that happens with partial rupture, but since we can't find a partial rupture, we need to have other support for that theory. And it's really been troublesome so far for the people subscribing to the idea of a neuronal phenotype being the primary factor to really describe whether that's primary or secondary. I think we all agree, and there's pretty good support, that at a late stage of tendinopathy, you have vessel ingrowth, you have nerves growing in with that, you have a lot of um, neuronal and, and nociceptive substances in the tendon that really causes the pain. But, but how early that will happen is, is more undescribed. Then there's the third uh, sort of major group of theories with very valid, and that is the fact of compressive load that induced the tendinopathy. And that's a theory that, that uh, has the idea that because of there is some squeezing, there are some changes in the tissue. That's primarily collagen type 2 and agrocan. That means that it's so cartilage-like changes, fibrocartilage, and there's no doubt that that has a very strong support for what could happen in the insertional part of the tendon or the antisopathy or the argument against it being a general phenomenon is that there are a lot of stages and a lot of places of tendons where you don't see necessarily a compression where it's simply tensile loading. So whereas this theory is well supported, it's not a theory that can, in my view, can go as an explanation for all kinds of, of tendinopathy. And then finally, I would say the last of the, of the at, right now at least, the four big ones is the idea that you have a homeostasis where you constantly uh, build up a little bit of uh, connective tissue in the tendon and you also break down some of it. And, and if you push that with training, then you get to a situation that those cells who sort of do the daily maintenance in the in the tendon that they're basically overloaded and the and the so-called workhorses there will then uh, stop really producing new um, new collagen or new substances for the tendon and thereby basically go into a stage where they just try to survive or even go into an apoptotic situation so they will die and therefore there will be tissue changes with this disorganized kind of. Those are the four, I would say, the four big ones, but there, there, there are other theories out there. There are ideas about primary breakdown of the tendon tissue as one starting it. I don't think that that has so much support. There are ideas of some immune response in the tendon that the, that the vessels that already are present in the tendon, that they become permeable and therefore uh, release substances and cells into uh, a tendon tissue, which has, is quite innate in terms of immunology. And then there are, of course, uh, predetermined factors like, like genetic differences that, that could also cause some of the changes and, and explain some of it. And some people have also suggested that there is an accumulation of a, a proteoglycans, which will, which will act as uh, osmotic uh, factors so that there will be a water accumulation. And, and finally, but not least, the, the, the very traditional, very old theory about the hypoxia or oxidative stress uh, in the tendon is also being presented once in a while, but, but there is no sign so far that, that the tendon is really hypoxic during exercise and the vessels that are there are perfectly supplying the tendon okay, but it might be that there are areas of a tendon which don't get what it should.
And let's go back to what you just mentioned, because you briefly mentioned insertional tendinopathy, and there's also mid-tendon tendinopathy. Are those, are those differences important? The difference is that at the insertional part, very often there is a, a bending, like, for instance, in the Achilles tendon. There are also areas, like in the rotator cuff, where the tendons are, are going around um, some bony cartilage substances and therefore get compression. And it is known from several studies that compression on top of tensile loading will actually then be, let's say, the, the leading factor and causing changes that, that is making the tendon more like a um, cartilage-like structure. So compression is a much more pronounced um, factor in the insertional part than it is in the in the mid-substance part. That, having said that, we're still facing a challenge, for instance, in the situation of patella tendinopathy, where we typically see uh, an insertional-like change, which uh, not necessarily has, has had a lot of compression, though some people would argue that maybe the, the bony part of the patella could could course this compression or the way that the contractions are done but 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 we're still not able to say for all parts of tendons and insertions what is dominating but i'm i'm pretty sure from the literature and from from what people have found that that it's safe to say that that the insertional changes very often are are caused by kind of compression like uh, Factors. Do you think there's a link between tendinopathy and tendon rupture? Personally, I don't uh, believe that there is a very strong link between those two things. First of all, when people have looked at tendinopathy and included people into studies, um, especially in the earlier days, a lot of people included in those studies turned out when you really investigated them actually to have a partial rupture and should never have been included. They didn't show the classical changes of of tendinopathy. It's also um, not been able, one has not been able to find really differences or changes in the tendon that look like a partial rupture with, uh, with tendinopathy. Uh, and for that reason, I don't think necessarily there is a very uh, tight link. It's difficult, of course, to investigate whether your risk is increased for a rupture once you have a tendinopathy. So, so therefore, I don't think the, the link is that close. So I actually think that there there are changes in the tissue that may precede a rupture, maybe even a, a partial rupture, but a lot of those are not causing, uh, causing pain. They're happening in an area where there are not many uh, vessels, where there are not many nerves, whereas tendinopathy will be a situation in which you very rapidly get ingrowth or presentation of nociceptive substances, and therefore you have pain in there, very often a lot of pain, despite the fact that your findings, when you look at them with ultrasonography or MRI, are not that dramatic. So I, I, don't, I think we should, we should consider these as two different entities and not necessarily with a close link uh, between those things. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's, it's possible to, to heal tendons? And, and if it's possible, what, what are your thoughts on intervention that promote intertendinous tissue regeneration? I think that the, the there certainly are possibilities of of healing. One, if one looks at at pictures from both ultrasonography, MRI, but also electron microscopy of tissue taken out from a tendinopathic area, 
there's no doubt that there are major changes in that compared to the to to a healthy part of the tendon. There is disorganization. The cells look different. But when when looked upon a year, two, three years later, although there are not many studies who've done it, but the ways the the, the studies that have tried to do that. Uh, demonstrate that there is a normalization, but whether that is a a ingrowth from the healthy part of the tendon uh, and uh, a substitution of fibrils in there in the tendinopathic area, that's not really known. But I but I know from pictures that one can see on ultrasonography, there is a normalization and there is a decrease in the number of vessels in there, even without any major treatment, you can see changes that normalizes this situation. But the what we really lack today is a good evaluator or thermometer, you could say, to, that can register how well is the tendon doing? When is it on its way to becoming healed? When is it becoming uh, on its way to get worse? And, and, and there is one of the big challenges we still have is that, for instance, pain it's very dissociated with how much hypervascularization there is in the tendon. So, so one can, on imaging with imaging techniques, uh, differentiate how much people have of changes there, but there are not on an individual basis or on a very tight time-wise table, very well correlated with uh, with the symptoms in terms of of pain. There is a correlation in a big scale, and you take a lot of individuals. But, but for the ind- for the single individual, it's very difficult to to really use that. Yeah, and because I'm also a little bit surprised because in your in your um, radio in your paper using radiocarbon dating, you showed that collagen turnover is minimal after adolescence. Can you tell us a little bit about that study and and what options there are for for the actual yeah. healing? I I think what what the data shows so far in re- regards to how how vital or or how uh, how high a turnover of tissue a tendon has that that the conclusion so far is that there are more is happening into the tendon that we that we so far thought, but it's not going to be a total replacement or exchange of the tendon. So so the data from from the uh, from the study in which we tried to look at the exchange of tissue in the tendon is supporting the idea that the a lot happens in the tendons while you're growing but 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 after adolescent you have uh, the big wires or the big structural parts of the tendon laid out it's almost like a bridge where you have the big wires the the weight bearing wires they are already laid out and they're not going to be exchanged later on unless you have a for instance a rupture or something else so so the major structure is probably there but in addition to that there is a lot of uh, daily maintenance there are cells which are producing collagen and other molecules there are uh, also uh, cells that are helping in breaking down some of the tissue so there's probably uh, one could say a 90% of the structure is there and is not being influenced, but the 10% of it is being constantly sort of uh, remodeled and adapted to the loading that happens. And this is very important because I think what that means is that maybe, and we don't know that very well from human studies, but maybe the maximal load or the maximal tolerable load 
of the tendon is not dramatically influenced. That's probably set by these big wires that are going all the way through the tendon. But all the fine-tuning, all the other things, there are the exchange of, of tissue that might happen in the deep part of the tendon, it might be more dominating on the surface or the outskirt of the tendon, that has an enormous contribution for adapting to the load that you're doing. And having said that, what I really think happens there is that a lot of these new molecules that are made are, for instance, crosslinks, crosslinks that would stiffen the tendon. We know that, know that the tendon gets stiffer when you do training and gets more slack when you are inactive. So maybe, and not only crosslinks, but maybe also some fibral pieces of collagen type 1 or, or other substances are involved in this getting the tendon more stiff or, or slack. And if you think about a tendon which goes, for instance, from, from a bone to a muscle like the Achilles tendon, there needs to be maybe a differentiated extensibility of the tendon. You have on one end a very stiff uh, bone and you have on the other end a muscle that is actually contracting. So so I think the, 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 the things so far fit uh, together in the way that you you can say that the, the, the major bricks are laid out early, which, by the way, in, in encourages the physical activity in, 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 in children and adolescents because this is really where the major part of the attendants are laid out and maybe also where you need to have this strong tendon built so you don't get the tendon rupture later. Then you have the problems in between that you need to have a stiffening of the tendon, you have cells in between there that needs to do this fine-tuning. And maybe those are the ones that are overloaded with too much and, and too frequent loading, and then they get into either a state where they don't do what they should do, they get into apoptosis, they're uh, dramatically changing the local, and that then creates a cascade that changes more than just just a few parts of the tendon, but also some of the... Of the uh, of the big wires, uh, though not a lot of them, but but makes at least an area in the tendon where where you where you have a localized uh, change of of tissue. So so I think these two things go together, and and uh, calculation wise, you can you can justify it that that there could be a turnover of let's say 10% of the tendon tissue all the time that keeps the things going on, and maybe you then have some extra cells which are just uh, kind of dormant, lying and waiting for 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 a, a a way to be activated, and that could be either by, by some tissue damage, by, by a needle into the tissue or a rupture, and the other cells which are already working, they need to get some tensile loading in order to do the, the, a new lineup of, of fibrils. What is the best treatment for, for tendinopathy? What would you recommend to the athletes? Well, right now, I think the, the best evidence for the, for the treatment that we, that we have is uh, is definitely mechanical loading. Uh, there's there's good evidence that that part of the tissue there is not getting the load that it should, and uh, whether that shielded off or something else. But but we know that unless a tissue is subjected to loading, then uh, you will not get uh, the uh, tensile. Uh, tendon adaptation and there, there, there are proofs that if you don't have that you can see changes that that the tendon just goes on having these tendinopathic changes. The, the challenge right now is that in the athlete we would like to be able to measure 
exactly how much load and whether this this tendinopathic area is really subjected to loading. And we 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 know now from some studies that just doing stretching is probably not gonna be good enough to change the areas that are tendinopathic, whereas muscle contraction is. And a lot of a lot of support is given for eccentric exercise. That's the strongest evidence that is out there. But the interesting thing is that a lot of studies have shown that that comparing eccentric and concentric, provided that you do it in a similar way, then a lot of studies with concentric also have proven efficient. They're just not as numerous as the eccentric ones. So so for, for the time being, eccentric is, is the drug of choice. All the other things that we put on top of this will will not be working unless there is some mechanical loading. And I, I strongly don't believe in any magic cure of some growth factors or others that could be injected and you, that will then do the trick because the structure will not be reestablished unless there are also mechanical loading. But for the athlete, obviously, even if we say eccentric exercise or concentric exercise, it's pretty safe to say that there is not a 100% cure. We still only see that the studies that come out have sort of a 70, 75% success. So, so there is a need for some other things to be put on on top of that. And I think that's where we have all the other substances, whether it's anti-inflammatory substances, it's it's platelet-rich plasma, it's shockwave therapy, high-volume injections, sclerosing therapy, growth factor injection, or surgery. They're all competing against having a big effect in itself or at least having an additive effect on top of uh, eccentric or concentric strength training. So a lot of the um, treatment which goes beyond uh, eccentric or concentric exercise is really not very well justified. Unfortunately, a lot of them are still trial and error. And you can see for some of them, there are even studies pointing against a, a major effect. And I think one of the challenges we have is, for instance, with regards to surgery, we normally have the view with tendinopathy that we we only subscribe surgery at a very late stage when everything, basically everything else has failed. And maybe that is a very tough game for the surgeons to be up against rather than to do some studies where we randomize to surgery at, at an earlier time point. Um, one can say that the anti-inflammatory treatment is, is, is not very, very efficient. There might be some early quick effect of glucocorticoids, but not uh, in the long run. Shockwave therapy in general only seems to be efficient if there are calcified areas in the, in the tendon and, and high-volume injection and platelet-rich plasma still awaits some more support before that can be used. And for platelet-rich plasma, it has to be said that the studies so far are really not encouraging uh, in terms of uh, supporting the idea of using it, especially if you look to the more high-quality studies. And finally, growth factors, injections like IGF-1 or other growth factors is is really a challenge because there, there are studies ongoing, but, but it's really difficult so far to say if there would be a combined effect on on these things of these things. Today we have been discussing the pathogenesis of tendinopathy with Professor Michael Kerr. We've talked about the difference between mid-tendon and insertional tendinopathy. We have looked at the the capacity of the tendon to heal 
And we have looked at some radiocarbon studies showing that collagen turnover is minimal after adolescence. Finally, we looked Finally, we looked whether there was a link between tendon rupture and tendinopathy and the main healing options for, for tendinopathy, looking at e-centric